The South and Southerners are rich territory for comedy, but it's also hard to get it right. We all know somebody who bristles whenever they hear a bad Southern accent, or when somebody gets a detail just a little bit wrong. But for my money, no one makes better Southern comedy these days than Danny McBride and Jody Hill. They've built a cult following around shows like Eastbound and Down and Vice Principals, depicting Southern men behaving very, very badly. But they also somehow managed to capture the pain and the heart at the root of a lot of these jokes. But their latest show, The Righteous Gemstones on HBO, is their masterpiece. The family at the center of this show is an evangelical megachurch empire, played by an incredible cast including McBride, John Goodman, Edie Patterson, Adam Devine, Eric Andre, Walton Goggins, and of course, my guest today, the incredibly talented Cassidy Freeman. That's right, folks. I can't think of a better way to start season six of The Reckon Interview than with Cassidy Freeman taking us to church. Cassidy plays Amber Gemstone, a gun-toting preacher's wife who begins to take a much bigger role in the church leadership in season two. This season, she and her husband Jesse, who is played by Danny McBride, survive an assassination attempt. They explore investing in an all-Christian timeshare venture. <laughs> and of course, they host a Bible study for struggling couples. You might also know Cassidy from her roles on hit shows like Smallville, Longmire, NCIS New Orleans, and in films like The Forever Purge. Today, she gives us a peek behind the curtain at what life is like on the set of The Righteous Gemstones, just how much of the show they're actually making up on the spot, what it was like filming in Charleston during COVID, and her source of inspiration for the character of Amber. So let's do it, folks. Let's go ahead and kick things off on season six of The Reckon Interview. Cassidy Freeman, welcome to The Reckon Interview. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let me start off by saying congratulations on the renewal of The Righteous Gemstones for season three. It's well-deserved. Thank you so much. We're pretty stoked. I think this is the funniest show on television, and I think that you and Danny McBride do a really great job together on screen. You have great natural chemistry. I want to talk a little bit about the creation of this character of Amber Gemstone. I know that you grew up in Chicago and in Montana. Tell me about how you got into the mindset of this, you know, Southern matriarch of a religious dynasty. I don't know that I had a whole lot of my life to pull from for this one. My mother was from Texas and Oklahoma. So I do have some family, you know, it's so funny. I always wonder what do people from the South think the South is, right? Like you're in Birmingham, Alabama, correct? So I count Texas and Oklahoma. You do? You count Texas and Oklahoma? Okay. Good to know. Good to know. Like, is South Carolina the South? It's in the name. I think most people would count South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. And then after you get that point, it gets a little wonky for a lot of people. And then those mountain people in North Carolina, they're not the South. They're crazy up there. And those hippies. So yes, I do have family from what I would consider the South compared to Chicago, where I grew up. And Montana is definitely not the South, but a whole different flavor of human being. I kind of love the fact that I've gotten to live all around and experience all these different types of cultures. But I definitely have... Uh, a side of my family that was more religious, was more along this vein, but very not this like mega church, incredibly wealthy version of things. So I kind of had to go into my imagination and also take a lot of cues from Danny, who's kind of like the master of all ceremonies. If anybody else were doing Danny's voice, you would think that it was just kind of like a fake Hollywood Southern accent, but he does it. So, I mean, it's, it seems to be authentically who he is. Maybe he takes it on a little bit for effect, but 
you know, how did you create your voice? Just as a little background, I, I lived in Chicago right out of high school. And when I told people in Alabama that I was moving to Chicago, of course, everybody starts doing the dub bears voice. Like, cause you know, people have a very particular sense of what a Chicago accent should be. <laughs> and so like Southerners get very particular about how their accents are depicted on screen. And yours is great. You do a great job. Where were you drawing that from? Wow. Thank you. Probably from my mom's family in part. And then I do know that like Texas is a bit different than deep South or, or even, even like Eastern South. I really just listen to those around me. You know, I know that most of Danny's shows happen in that area. He's from Virginia, but really just sort of like listening. And I just, I've always had an ear and I love listening to people. So even just going out and listening to people in South Carolina that I run into the baristas or people that work in restaurants or whatever, like, you know, knowing that they're from there and listening to them and then trying to sort of emulate them. That's how I found it. You mentioned that you didn't necessarily grow up in the megachurch world. I believe at least your father's family is is Jewish. Mm -hmm. And you actually have some roots on that side in, in Virginia also, right? I do. Yeah. My grandmother was the daughter of an Orthodox rabbi butcher in Virginia. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> a, a common Southern story. Uh. Yeah, I know. That's why I wondered. Like. <laughs> Were there real life people, you know, I don't know if Tammy Faye Baker or Beth Moore, were there real life kind of evangelical women that you looked to when creating the look of this character, you know, the blown out hair, the perfect posture? I remember auditioning for this and Sherry Thomas told me, she said, you know, I did an audition and then I had to go test, which is you know, testing is when you go in front of all the producers and it's kind of like the last step before they say yay or nay. And I remember Sherry Thomas, our casting director, said, like, go to a blow dry bar and get the Southern blow dry hair do. And I was like, for real? And she was like, yeah. She's like, believe me, like, not that they don't have imaginations or your, you know, your, your talent doesn't shine through, but it's really just nice to see it all together. And there is a very specific aesthetic to this particular kind of woman. I try not to base characters I play on people that exist just because I don't want to get into the realm of like right versus wrong. I wanted Amber to sort of have her own voice. And even though I may not be a part of evangelical or megachurch or even Southern charmy kind of environments, I do know what it's like when a woman really cares about what she looks like because I've lived in Los Angeles. Just taking into consideration how women who care and also who have money or who are trying to portray a certain level of class or status, how they hold themselves. And it's very different than how I hold myself. So I don't go around worried about my posture in that way or how I'm presenting to the world. So it's kind of a fun activity. I think half of like being an actor is just being a creep, like watching people and just sitting at like coffee shops. That's half of being a journalist too. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't doubt that. Well, let's talk about the set because you were obviously on there with, uh, you know, a lot of comedy legends and uh, you certainly hold your own. I'm curious about how much of this is improvised, how much of it is kind of scripted out and planned. How much do you get to shape kind of the character arc of Amber? And what's that like? I work with some incredibly talented people and talent in a, in a realm, in, in multiple realms, right? You have like the, <laughs> just the effortlessness of John Goodman, where you're watching him in person going like, what's he doing? I don't see what he's doing. And then you see it edited and put together and you're like, genius. I love that this season has tapped into how menacing he can be. Like he has that ability to go from jolly and fun to 
scary as hell and you know in no time flats yeah like he might really take you down i love that too i hope he enjoys playing that part because you know all of our parts are they're parts of us right they're all that all of it's inside of us but i will tell you a lot of this is scripted i think danny would say out of all the shows he's done this is the least improv only because they spend so much time on these scripts and particularly season two, they rewrote the whole thing all over again because we had a year off from COVID. So, you know, we do have really tight, awesome scripts. And then we all get into a room like a church lunch scene. And then it's like, whatever happens, happens. That entire Disney wedding extravaganza, I can't tell you how many of those takes were like seven plus minutes long. We really dug deep into all of our knowledge of the Disney catalog, what types of people would marry each of us. And I mean, our camera crew must absolutely hate us um, because we just, I hope, I hope they do. But no, what's really cool is that Danny has a very, I think, unique and specific sense of humor. One that he and Edie Patterson have really like honed in. They've worked together before, they write together. They're both just such talented improvisers. And then you add in all of the talents that Danny's chosen for this particular show. You know, like obviously Adam is drop dead funny and Tony Cavalero's character Keith is hilarious. And Tim Baltz is like this silent, consistent MVP. I can't tell you how funny Tim Baltz is an actual person and when he's on. But in any event, they all are just so hilarious. And a lot of his improvising never makes it in. But the stuff that does, you know, it's really fun to see. I think more than like it's 30% or it's 50% is that like it's they're open to it. It's always like everyone's happy to see it and experience it and cheer each other on. You mentioned that Danny and David and Jody had, had rewritten all of season two because of COVID. But also, it, you know, it feels like the world changed a lot during that two-year period when y'all weren't filming and particularly you know in the south and i don't know how much you kind of pay attention to the actual evangelical world while all this is going on but like there's been a big pushback by women like the role that you play about the way that the church treats women in the south and you know started some of that started with the me too movement and some of that started in the response to the, the murder of George Floyd and just kind of the way that the church approached COVID. No masks, obviously, in a lot of these mega churches. You know, how much of that is playing into the way that it seems like Amber is is taking on a more assertive role in this season and is kind of helping push Jesse in, you know, into getting involved with this timeshare and getting involved with the listens and things like that. I think something really interesting that happened throughout this last year that we all went through was some like reflecting, but also Danny talks about this a lot about how like he comes up with ideas for this show. And then before we're able to film them and edit them and release them, they happen in real life. And he's like, what? He's like, people think I'm like copying and actually like, I think that art imitates life. I think that that's really common. I think that we tried to stay really consistent with what this story was about, you know, like, we touch on a little bit of COVID or there being pandemics and there being unrest in that whole like G-O-D-D, God on digital demand speech that Eli gives. But we didn't really want to belabor it. I think it's awesome that people are speaking out. I think it's amazing that women in any situation or group of people want to be heard, want to be seen. I think Amber's journey is more about the distrust of season one. And I feel like that's when she really 
said what she needed to say, as it were, with a firearm. And that this next season is sort of the representation of Jesse and Amber being a team instead of her just being a trophy wife or the person in the dark. To me, that's about trust, right? That's them both trusting each other to be there for each other, to to be the team members and to push forward their agenda as a couple rather than individuals. Danny has a really great gift for creating these shows that are about just horrible people. I mean, people you would not actually want to spend much time with in real life, but also finding, you know, the heart and the humanity in some of these characters. You know, how do you keep your character grounded? And then also, you know, a lot of these shows are about kind of the specific ways that like Southern men can be horrible to each other. So how do you and Edie carve out space for you in these sets that are very male? No, they are incredibly male. I think that's representative of what they actually are. I think that's sort of true to form. I I think it's interesting from an artistic point of view for an audience to cheer for the bad guy. (laughs) I think that's almost strangely like an artistic ability that some people have and Danny seems to have. You know, everyone loves all of these despicable characters that he or his cohorts play. I think in some ways it represents a part of all of us that very few of us will, will admit that we have the part of us that either does or thinks the really awful things. <laughs> we get to see them personified and we go like, I strangely relate to that. And so I will strangely cheer it on. Edie and I talk a lot about, Edie is like my wife in real life. We are so close in real life that getting to sort of have that static on set is fun for us, but we're also aware that women tend to be pitted against each other. We try to just make it about the characters and less about gender in terms of, you know, why do women always have to hate each other? The truth is that Amber and Judy, who they are, would not get along. They want the same things. You know, there's limited resources that they're both going after. But, you know, we have fun with that. And I just think that that playing that kind of despicable person, it's freeing in a way. And I think people can relate to that side of it. How I keep Amber grounded Amber is really clear about what matters to her. And I think she has a really soft heart. I think she really just wants people to be happy and wants to be happy herself. I like to think about and fantasize about what Amber's life was before she got Jesse, before she became the kind of woman that could get someone like Jesse. And, you know, I think that's kind of what grounds her is the stuff we haven't figured out yet. And I hope that gets to be developed in seasons to come. Obviously, this is a a set where the characters make horrible, demeaning jokes about women all the time. Is there a place where you would draw a line as an actress that your character wouldn't necessarily draw? I think in terms of like safety on set and feeling feeling safe as a woman, it's less about what's being said and more about how and who is saying it. I trust every single person I work with on this set. I've never felt demoralized or objectified or um, unsafe in any way, shape or form. And I think that the vulgar humor doesn't, at least so far, nothing's upset me to the point of wondering, like, is this against my value system? I mean, the show has more full frontal male nudity than any show I've ever seen, much less been a part of. (laughs) So in terms of that, I feel like feel like really it's leaning the other way but no there's nothing about this show that ever makes me feel unsafe so shooting during covid you know i know south carolina probably had less restrictions than i bet new mexico or california did i mean what was it like on set you know trying to navigate would you all have been shooting during the delta wave i guess we did we were yeah we shot from the beginning of march until the end of september we we actually never shut down for covid and i know the resources that were given are such a privilege you know, we're given 
an entire like small hospital staff of nurses and, and lab workers that really just test us every other day. And anyone who complained about that, man, oh man, I was like, we are so privileged to have this ability to, to do this. The science kept changing. It continues to change, actually. <laughs> the virus continues to change and everything continues to change. And so I think, you know, the hardest part, look, yeah, no one loves wearing a mask. You do what you need to do. No one loves not hugging people or having that added stress. I was worried that COVID in general, no matter where, what wave or version we were in, to be creative, you have to be relaxed, right? To be creative, you have to be able to feel really comfortable. And um, it definitely was a record playing in the background all the time. I think different people have different levels of concern about this particular virus, about sickness in general. We all have things at home, whatever that be, whether it's a partner or a parent or a kid or whatever that's like high risk or, you know, and we all have different ideas. It also then became very like politicized and sensitive especially in the South, I think with Hollywood mixing with South Carolina, there may have been some very different feelings on either side of that. I think the trick was the hardest part really was just to stay adaptable to what was happening and what was changing and then trusting the medical personnel. You know, when the Delta variant came out, people, there were a lot of breakthrough cases, but there also was this idea that people who were vaccinated weren't carrying as much viral load. And this continues to always change and people can always Google and find whatever they want to believe. So I think a lot of it was just letting go and trusting the people that we put in charge to to keep us safe. And they did a really, really great job. Um, And for that, I was really grateful. But yeah, I mean, ideally, no one wants to to film during a global pandemic. And there were days when I was like, why are we doing this? But because we have to keep going and we have to keep finding ways to uh, to work and to support each other and to communicate and to be adaptable. Coming up after the break, we hear more from Cassidy Freeman about the Righteous Gemstones and her experiences in the South. Hey, guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at ReckonSouth.com slash newsletters. Had you spent much time in the South, specifically the Deep South, prior to the first season when you were shooting in Charleston? No, I'd spent a lot of time in Oklahoma and Texas, which we've, you and I have decided is also the South. I had filmed a movie in, in the top of Florida like a million years ago, I felt like. And it was a weird movie that I hope no one ever sees. It was a scuba diving movie. It's the first movie I ever did. Got me my SAG card. But it was really fun. It's called Bleed. And it is Don Murray directed it. Don Murray, who was in Bus Stop with Marilyn Monroe. Like, that epic John Murray. I think we were at the Santa Barbara Film Festival. It was interesting to be in that area. I'd never really been there. I mean, there was a bar that was under construction because months before it had finally been desegregated. And I was like, oh, interesting. And this wasn't that long ago. But no, I haven't. You know, when I drive to South Carolina, I drive through Birmingham, actually. I stayed there in this van that I'm talking to you from. I would love to get to know it better, but I have not spend a lot of time in the deep south nope uh well what's the reception been like in charleston because obviously as a southerner i see a whole lot of truth in what y'all are depicting on screen even the the god squad that adam's character has this season like i remember seeing things like that as a kid growing up and so it is caricature but there's a lot of truth there and what's the reception been like for y'all in charleston like do you get stink eye from people or, or do people like it 
majority of the response has been positive. I think people do like it. I think they're interested in in sort of the characterization of something that rings true. You know, obviously it's pumped up for television. Danny also knew of a God Squad. That's why he wrote that into that season is that he actually saw that. This like, you know, this group of of men that like rip phone books and and like <laughs> break things with their hands. That's crazy. I've never seen anything like that. They're not topless or anything like that, but like certainly the like karate for Christ type stuff. A version of that rings true from stuff I remember seeing. Man to man, promise keepers, like this like masculine the author of Jesus and John Wayne writes about it like tying hypermasculinity into uh, and there being maybe a homoerotic undercurrent for a lot for a lot of it. <laughs> maybe. 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 Who knows? Maybe. The the response I've gotten from people who are not only Southerners, but also churchgoers who are Christians, who are believers, um, I think they see sort of what we're focusing on, which is more the hypocrisy rather than just like anti-religion or anti-South. And I think it rings true. And I'm happy to hear it does to you because it is they are experiences that Danny has had. And it's a world that Danny knows pretty well. you know, his, his family is religious. He just, he does come from different versions of this. And I think it fascinates him for that reason as well. Um, not being super versed in it myself. I tend to just stand back and watch and like hope that no one's being offended, but also like quite fascinated with it and happy to hear that it's ringing somewhat true. And, you know, this season, the character that Jason Schwartzman plays, the kind of Brooklyn journalist, gives him equal opportunity of, of making fun of, of New Yorkers, too. So. Yeah, don't all New Yorkers just take lines of cocaine off of their Adirondack chairs while they're sitting outside of their Airbnbs? Yeah, and then just mutter to themselves that they hate the South. <laughs> I think I knew someone from Manhattan who did that, yeah. We mentioned that your father's family was Jewish. Were you religious growing up? Was it anything that, you know, w- whether it was Jewish faith or Catholic or anything in, in Chicago growing up? No, my parents, they were incredibly like balanced. They're both lawyers. So they kind of come from science is truth and like what we see is truth and what we can touch is truth. And my mother was raised pretty Christian, but she, I think, and without knowing, she passed nine years ago. So I can't have this conversation with her now. But the conversations I had with her were kind of like religion was under the guise for her and how she saw it as misogyny and bigotry. And the church was against, you know, she basically was a freedom writer. She would go help, you know, people of color vote and she would just spunky in general. And I think anything her father said, but she had a real, a real strong, uh, like North star for justice and for, um, equality. And her and my dad, they met in DC when my dad was clerking for the Supreme court. My mom was an intern at the U S attorney's office. (laughs) So neither of them were raised incredibly religious. My father, because in the forties and fifties, for reasons we probably don't even have to say being Jewish, wasn't super cool. It was dangerous. And so I know growing up in Chicago, he grew up in Chicago and the suburbs of Chicago. You know, he was the caddy for golf clubs that he wasn't allowed to be a member of. And it was just in Chicago. So it was, you know, it was a different time. And I think they both sort of just focused on the things that that mattered to them, truth, their careers, their family. They were never against us ever experiencing religion. You know, I had a friend I remember growing up who like talked about Sunday school, like it was a club. And I was like, I want to go to Sunday school. And my mom was like, okay, go to Sunday school. You know, like it was no big deal. I was 
partially raised by a black woman from Mississippi who's still alive. She's 98. She was my na, like my second mom. And she helped raise all of us. And she's incredible. And she would go to church on the weekends on the south side of Chicago. And so I would go to church with her, but that was like more just about singing <laughs> than anything else. I just love to sing. And, you know, every single person in my high school or my middle school got bar and bat mitzvahed. So I've been to like a gajillion of those. I, I, I was at religious ceremonies, but I never really, that was never practiced in our home, but it was always open to be talked about. I lived in the part of the Birmingham area that most of the city's Jewish population lived in. So I also went to a bunch of bar and mitzvahs growing up. You know, you mentioned that she was from Mississippi. Some of my Mississippi colleagues, uh, particularly my Black Mississippi colleagues, they refer to Chicago as North Mississippi. I said, I have a big tent for what the South is, but there are, you know, I think there's a section of the South that's called the, I mean, of of Chicago that's called the Black Belt there in, in the South side because of so many people moving up from Mississippi and Alabama during the Great Migration. So even if you didn't grow up in the South, I'm sure there's some Southern culture, especially if you were raised by a woman from Mississippi that made its way into your life. Yeah, no, Ida definitely taught me a lot about and what it was like growing up in Mississippi and then in the twenties, which is crazy. <laughs> yeah. She's like better than any book I could read or, or a movie I could watch. You know, she really is. I wish we all spoke to people more often, especially older people. Well, especially, you know, the connections between Mississippi and Chicago with, with, with the murder of Emmett Till and, and things like that, you know, very deep the way that, that these things go back and forth. So what's next for you? You've got Righteous Gemstones coming up season. You'll be filming season three, I guess, sometime next year. What other projects do you have in the works? Biggest other project I have in the works is that I'm having a baby in a week. Hey, congratulations. (laughs) In a week? (laughs) And you're out hiking right now? Okay. (laughs) Hey, thank you. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Yeah, I'm hiking. That's my biggest project. She's supposed to be here in a week. We'll see when she shows up. So by the time this airs, hopefully I will, uh, I'll be in the, the total realms of of lack of sleep and sanity. Being able to be a mom and and have this career is like a total dream. So I feel pretty grateful that I get to do that. Um, And I tried to time it between seasons and I really scored. So so I did it. (laughs) Yeah, that right now is my biggest project. I'm going to see, I told my agents that I'm like totally happy to start working in like three weeks. And they told me to maybe just take a break and chill out for a minute. It's it's a blessing to be super supported by this too. To bring a little gemstone to next season is pretty rad. Are you going to name him anything, him or her, anything like Gideon or Pontius or? It's, you know, she'll be born a girl, whatever she wants to be. But part of me was like, I really like the name Amber. There's absolutely no way I could do that. It's off the table. But no, I have no idea. I feel like I got to meet her first. But I do, I produce other films. I produced a, a horror film with my brother and our friends from Middlebury College, where I went to college. We're kind of a, a little group of creatives that are constantly making small movies that make us laugh or scream and constantly reading and, and trying to just like watch my friends. And But I did, I took this year to sort of to have a baby. Our first is four months old as of today. That period where you are in between sleep all the time, it, it, it truly does break you in a way that I did not expect. So you and I right now, you're you're in new dad brain and I'm in pregnancy brain, like last week of pregnancy brain. How are we even still talking? I don't know. It's amazing we got through this whole conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know it is. I know. That's incredible. The thing I guess I didn't know going into it is 
that at, at about four months, their, their sleep regresses. Like you think, oh yeah, they're starting to get to where they can make it through the night. And then all of a sudden they can't make it two and a half hours through the night anymore. So, well, that's really exciting. I'm, I'm happy for you. And uh, I think that'll be, and then I guess, you know, this is a question I ask a lot of my guests, um, whether it's, you know, your experience with Ida growing up, your experience with your mom in Texas and Oklahoma, your experience in Charleston, you know, what do you think of when you think about the South? Wow. I think, well, maybe this is because I'm from Chicago, but the first thing I think about is food. You know, Ida taught me how to cook and this might sound like cliche or I didn't even really know how cliche it was, but black eyed peas and, and fried green tomatoes are my favorite food like ever. I even learned how to make the best gluten-free fried green tomatoes for all of my like gluten-free friends, which is a very California thing. I love the food of the South. Another thing I think of when I think of the South is kindness, hospitality in that way. I will say something that I admire about cities and the two cities I've lived in, like Chicago, New York, I've lived all over the place and I'm still getting to know Charleston having just spent two seasons there. I was on a show in Vancouver for three years. So I got to know what like those Western Canadians were like. Chicago is its own breed of, <laughs> of human being. New York, I went to school in Vermont. I lived in Montana and Los Angeles and now New Mexico, just really trying to hit everywhere. i possibly can. The South seems really nice. Sometimes I don't know if it's totally genuine. I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's like, they're going to be nice to me no matter what. And I'm kind of like, if I pissed you off or I did something like, I want you to be able to tell me so that sometimes I'm kind of weary of that. Cause I tend to be Chicago Midwesterners tend to be kind of like what the Labradors we're kind of like, Hey, we're friendly. Let's hang out. You know, like <laughs> and we might like get our asses kicked a little bit sometimes for being just like so nice about everything. But yeah, and I think about sweat because I'm going to tell you, I'm not a hot, muggy weather person. My people come from the North. You know, I'm like a Polish, like Scottish, Northern, not Southern. I get real, real like drippy. I just like, and and something inside of me kind of slows down too. But maybe that happens to you guys. Do you feel that way? Oh, I, yeah. I imagine I spent one winter in Chicago and you just kind of endure it for the winter as much as you can. And to some extent, that's how it is in, in the South in the summer. You just, you know, I mean, like it's nice to go to the lake and the beach and all that stuff, but you just try to stay inside as much as you can. Like when it's hot enough that like the elderly are dying, then it's too hot. <laughs> you know? That's right. When you're like, I want to get my steps in today. I got to go before 9 a.m. or after 7. And other than that, you're pretty much just like laying there. Uh, which honestly, if I could go to the beach or hang out in AC, AC also kind of freaks me out because it's it's such a drastic change. And that's true in Chicago too. Um, Chicago summers are also sweaty. I've run away to the mountains of northern New Mexico for a very dry climate and occasional snow. It's real sweaty. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. I guess by the time that we... Uh... Our audience hears this. We'll be thinking of you and, and your baby. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. And that's our show, folks. Thank you so much to Cassidy Freeman for taking time to speak with us, especially when you were just days away from giving birth. We hope that both mama and baby are doing well. You can find all episodes of The Righteous Gemstones on HBO and HBO Max. Folks, if you like our show, help us grow it by subscribing, sharing it with your friends, and leaving us a five-star review. And if you want more from Reckon every week, sign up for our newsletter, The Conversation, at ReckonSouth.com newsletters. 
Next week, we're going to hear from Imani Perry about her new book, South Toward America, which may be the best book about the South that I have ever read. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss this one. So go ahead and mash that subscribe button as fast as you can. The Reckon Interview is executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree, and it's edited by Kanika Codrington and the fine folks at Edit Audio. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with us.